Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Welcome back to the second episode of PI World Sell It to the City. And I'm your host, Tamsin Freeman. And this is an event where three private investors pitch their best stock idea to leading fund managers, Andy Bruff from Schroders, Judith McKenzie from Downing, and Stephen English from Stellar Asset Management. And the idea is for the retail investor to uncover a hidden gem that the fund managers know little about. So let's see how they do. We've got an excellent panel of private investors who will present in this order. The winner from the first episode, Richard Crow, also known as Cockney Rebel, and on Twitter as at RebelHQ. And then we've got Daniel Jones, who has no Twitter handle, and Leo Hendry, who on Twitter is at LeoInvestorUK. So the format slightly different from last time. Each investor will have 10 minutes to present their stock, followed by eight minutes of questions by the fund managers. And then the fund managers will give their views on the stock and on the pitch. And then after the last pitch, which will be Leo, the fund managers will give their score out of five for both the stock idea and the pitch. And the investor with the highest score will be invited to come back to the next Sell It to the City. And then if any presenter comes back and wins three times, they'll go for lunch with one of the fund managers. And that's a prize money can't buy. So first up, we've got Richard Crow, who will pitch ShoeZone, ticker S-H-O-E. Richard, are you ready? I'm ready. Thank you. The stock I've got for you is ShoeZone. Floated in 2014 at around 170 pence. The chairman is John Smith. The CEO is Anthony Smith. These are two brothers. The Smiths had handed over the CEO reins back in 2000 and I think it was 2018, just prior to COVID. And uh, the CFO didn't do much of a job. So the two brothers have come back again to run the company. Shoe Zone is uh, owned by uh, 50%, 53% of the company is owned by the two brothers, Anthony Smith and uh, John, John Smith. So that's real skin in the game. The company sells its own brand of shoes like Lily, Lily and Skinner and recently acquired a number of brands from Brentano to expand their big box plan of clo- and they're closing small high street stores for big retail park warehouses. They also sell a few big brands like Dr. Martin's from their 410 stores. They have a big fleet of high street stores which are on short leases and are being closed to replace the big box and high brand stores. This way they increase the floor space but reduce rents and overheads. Loss making stores are being closed where they aren't viable going forward. Big box stores are largely self-service with greatly reduced costs and lower staffing requirements. The company made 40 million sales in H1 compared to 68 million sales in H1 last year. That was with 16 weeks of the stores being closed, which is about 30% of the year's sales. And they made a lot of this up online by, by embracing their new online service, which they hadn't really uh, used prior to this. Uh, it had been just a small part of the business, but they've embraced it recently and sales rose from 5.5 million this time to 7.6 million. And this is now up to 30 million from the recent trading statement. 
Anyway, without getting too bogged down into too much of the numbers, the story is this. At the finals in March, they said the dividend policy was on hold and, not, and would not be paid until 2025 at the earliest. And they wanted to deal with a £10 million pension deficit before a divvy would be paid. This was all due to COVID coming in and really slapping the company quite badly. A few days later, the Smiths bought 1.5 million shares between them, which is, uh, you know, a fair, about £750,000 at 50 pence a share. The Smiths got lucky because since then they've had two big profit upgrades, one in October and another one in November. The October said that digital revenue use were up from 10 million in, in 2019 to 30 million. The net cash was up from 6.3 million last year to 14 million. Pre-tax profits not less than 6.5 million. Two weeks later on November the 1st, they said profit before tax would be 9 to 10 million. Although this was partly due to not being required to recognise 1.5 million of additional pension contributions and there was also a small foreign currency gain. So 9 to 10 million profit before tax in a year when they were clo closed for a third of the time. Uh, if you take out the uh, the bit they got from the, not having to pay the pension fund and the, the about, I think it was about £400,000 worth of uh, currency gains, you're talking about seven point seven to £8 million profit. With another 16 weeks trading, I think they could possibly do something like £12 million profit this year if that was on the same sort of sales. They're forecast to do 12.8 PEPS this year, but just 6.5 million profit before tax next year and a 10.4 PEPS. That just looks a gross underestimate compared to what they've done so far this year. A lot of the competition has gone to the wall and will do do so next year as they, they open their big book stores right near to other smaller competitors. Zeus suggests that a dividend could now be resumed this year instead of 2025. Basically, if you read the year-end results and the annual report, there was a lot of COVID gloom, a delay in store openings, a need to deal with a £10 million pension deficit and no divvy to 2025. Fast forward to November and the pension deficit seems to be less of an issue. They have issued huge profit upgrades and if you search Google with the word share zone, you'll find that they're opening stores at a pace. Recovery here seems to have strong momentum behind it and that I think earnings upgrades will be likely. The Smiths putting their hand in their pocket for 1.5 million shares in the summer also adds to my confidence. There's been no dilution in the last seven years. They started with 50 million shares and they still have 50 million shares. During COVID, it looked like they, most retailers were going to have to raise a bit of cash. And these look like they might have to too, but they hung on, bit the bullet and they, they didn't raise any more money. And so... That's kept the share numbers down to uh, the original float numbers. On a P of 10.4, that looks conservative to me when, uh, as a guide in 2018, they managed to do 18.2 PEPS and the, sh and the shares were trading at double the price they are today. There's going to be higher staff costs coming forward. There's going to be higher shipping costs and uh, NHS contributions, but that affects the whole sector. It doesn't just affect the share zone. So... It's a competitive thing amongst the whole business, so it's not their disadvantage amongst the, the rest of the businesses. It's something that's going to affect them all. But aside from that, there's going to be a bit of inflation, and uh, I've never known retailers to be armed by a bit of inflation, to be honest. They always manage to scream a bit in there for themselves. Meanwhile, they will be closing 
loss-making stores and opening more of these big box hybrids. These big box hybrids are big warehouses compared to little high street stores where they're paying short leases and uh, they're not very profitable. If they move into the big warehouses, they can then uh, have fewer staff in there because they're sort of more or less self-service and they've got high, higher uh, floor space and the, the costs are less and the, the, the profit should be high out and this is the reason for them doing this type of thing. We all come into the world with like two feet and uh, hopefully we leave with the same. We will we'll all want shoes and uh, we all buy a number of pairs in the year. I, I don't know, I'm, I, I probably buy three or four, four pairs a year. I'm in a wheelchair. You know, I don't, I don't, I need shoes hardly. I'm still wearing the Dr. Martins that I was wearing in 1977, and thankfully they've come back round into fashion. So that's uh, one good thing. I just need Ted Baker to do the uh, get tank tops back into fashion, and I'll be on the Milan catwalks. If things are, uh, get tight, then people are going to move to the cheaper brands rather than the the higher level brands that other stores like uh, uh, June and stuff sell. So I think if things do get a little bit tighter for people and they've got kids they're going to want to shop in shoe zone rather than the expensive stores going forward they should have a higher dominance in the high street and a rapidly growing presence online you know the online has, has now got the 30 million which is a significant part of the business now the stock looks pr pretty good for a great recovery play on my opinion uh, one last little teaser there's uh, these were paying 11.5 pence dividend in 2018 the results are due tomorrow in actual fact so it's uh live by the sword die by the sword tonight but as uh you know tomorrow will be the 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 litmus test uh, i'm a holder and a buyer and obviously i'm biased so you know do your own research but i honestly think this is a a good recovery play fantastic richard thank you very much indeed so who's going to kick off with the questions andy judith or stephen well i think as, as it's uh we're talking about shoes and Judith's, Judith's probably got the biggest collection of anyone here. Maybe you want to kick off, Judith. You don't really want to see what's on my feet at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I would show you, but it really would be quite embarrassing. Um, yeah, just a few questions from me, really. Um, how do you, when you're looking at the valuation, how do you treat the pension fund? Because a pension fund liability is always a bit of a chain around the neck sometimes. And uh, and here on this one, I believe that, that it's clar the payments, the repayments are clarified out to March 22. And then they're going to have to renegotiate with the pension fund trustees. So just give me an idea in your own mind how you uh, look at that um, pension fund deficit um, and and how you treat it in the valuation. Well, most of the businesses I've found have had, uh, have had pension deficits and they, they live with them. I know it's, it's they're probably, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking if, it, if it's a small, if their profits are growing at this, this pace and it's a, a small bit off their uh, their profits each year going forward, I, I don't know. I've never really known how to treat pension deficits because if interest rates go up, pension deficits suddenly, you know, completely turn around. It looks like interest rates are going up. So I really, I don't know, I think, some of the PE ratios that stocks are trading on at the moment with pension deficits seem quite reasonable. Uh, it's something I can't deal with as a private investor. I really don't sort of understand where they go with actuaries, you know, and everything else that gets involved. And but I, I take a view that I've never seen a, I've not seen a business go bust over its pension deficit in the past, you know, 
20 years, I don't think. And I know it's a, a bit of a drag on the profits, but the, the, the profit growth here is fabulous, despite their pension uh, that they've got. So it's something I, I, I just take as every business having at the moment and they deal with it somewhere or another. Oh, but the thing that struck me, Richard, was that the, the gross product margin was like 61%. And I'm thinking, you know, best of breeds, people like Ashley and JD are only at 48%. Well, they manufacture a lot of their shoes themselves out in China, I think. So that's the the the, the advantage of it. They've got lots of brands which are their own that they ship in themselves. So, you know, that that's where their their niche is. But obviously, their their brands. It's a bit like uh, Sports Direct. You know, he's got his Longsdale and his his other bits of brands that he makes mark good margins on, I presume. And uh, you know, if if people want the Dr. Martins and they want to pay the high margins, it's uh, uh, you know they're they're going to go into the bigger stores and they're going to pay for the the high cost shoes, but the, his shoes are perfectly acceptable. In actual fact, I was reading on uh, looking at some of the new stores that have been uh, opened and closed recently, and uh, out in uh, up north at Grimsby and uh, Scunthorpe, I think the other one was. They're closing a couple of high street stores. I think they're going to be mo using bigger stores because that's the idea. Close all as many of these short lease high street stores that they've got and move out to big warehouses. And and the people, there's people on there absolutely gobsmacked that the shoe zone's going from the high street. It's like the end of the world to these people. You know, it's, it's a shoe shop. You know, you can't be, it's not like they've stolen your, your favourite uh, restaurant or something like that. It's just another shoe shop. And there's people on there saying that the high street, you know, our high street's destroyed now without shoes on. So they've obviously got a, a, a following. And I think probably in the in the places where people are people are less wealthy than those in London, then uh, I think, you know, the, they, they, they provide a good service and they've got a good margin from the stuff that they ship in from China themselves, their, their own brands. So that's probably why their margins are better than a lot of people. I was busy pitching it at Mellow in October 19 rose 40 percent for a couple of months and then it went on and fell 72 percent and then i read the zeus note came through and he had his weetabix so she had a weetabix that morning the analyst that they're they're penciling earnings per share in the medium term of 44 pence i thought there was a decimal place missing um but 44 pence that's if they can hit 150 million store sales and 85 million digital sales which they're well on the way of doing digital was always an afterthought with that shoe zone, but the, the pre-COVID, to be fair, so then they started to get the house in order there. And the fact they can drop a temp, deliver a ten-pound pair of shoes for free, and still make a higher contribution than they do in store, I think tells you everything about their logistics uh, and IT systems which they've designed in-house. So, but, but Stephen, but Stephen, don't don't you know? We've seen all these internet retailers being killed by returns. Don't you know? You, I can't believe that you know people buy shoes online, and um, just they don't fit. Just just send them back. I mean, uh, uh, do you know? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, sorry. The, the 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 good thing about shoes on is ninety. Sorry, only eleven percent of shoes are returned anyway, and of that eleven percent, ninety percent are returned to store, which That's is a phenomenal. We was discussing this on the chat room just uh, this week, and you know, Boo, Boohoo, ASOS, 
uh, all these other online retailers, they don't have a store. They don't have a store structure anymore. So they're having to take take returns back, and they're being sent back, and it's costing them a fortune. Marks and Spencers next. They've, they've got the stores there, so not just click and collect and you go and buy stuff. You take your shoes back and they can say to you, well, would you like them in a different size? Or would you like a different brand? Can we give you another another shoe? Can we sell you another pair of shoes? And so that's the beauty of uh, having online and high street stores. I, I thought when COVID, COVID landed, I thought, oh, that's it. Like everybody else, we heard this thing about the internet has suddenly jumped seven years into the future. I should have finished. My little high street down at Prince's Risborough, fantastic. That, that has been completely transformed lately. It's uh, like, like going to a different different place. And uh, not a good example, Jules. They've got they've kept their uh, they've kept their stores simply because they can do click and collect and they can do return. So although they're not doing very well uh, for the sake of their warehouse problems, they've they've identified that and and managed to keep those things. And I think probably a ABF this week will, uh, next week when their results come out having having stores would have helped them rather than the pure online retailers. So it's a, it's a good thing to have, have stores and, and online, I think, and that's where they're winning. Yeah. Just on the stores, I mean, the, the, I don't know what you think, Stephen, Judith, but you know, when I'm looking at these stocks, I'm sort of struggling to kind of work out how much of a business rates catch up these people are going to have to, to have, having had a sort of holiday and trying to get, you know, what does the P&L really look like? On a sort of normalised basis, if, if normal is ever going to reappear. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair point because if you look in um, their statement, they said I think it was um, when did they say see it? But they they acknowledged that um, they they were behind on rental payments. That's because they were negotiating some of the leases. These are smart lads. Let's not let's not forget the Smiths are. You know they're they're not barrel boys by any means. They know how to source, they know how to sell, and they know how to negotiate. But I just wonder how much is um, a backlog in terms of payments. So you've got rental payments that were um, that were being they, they acknowledged were behind, and they also said that um, it wasn't very clear what the the COVID um, the COVID loan repayment schedule was going to be as well. So I'm, I would really struggle to get a proper view of the balance sheet, which is why I was probably asking the question on how you look at the pension deficit as well. It's quite difficult to see because it swung so much. You went, went from 12 million debt to what a net position of 4 million cash, but also acknowledging that um, they were behind on rental payments. So, I mean, what's your view as to where it really sits at the moment? Well, I... Uh... Now, like, like, like you say, I, I, as a private investor, I sit there and I think oh, I can't, I can't see all these things. There, you know, it's, it's not there for me to, to be able to see. All I can do is, all I can actually do is listen to what they're saying and, and sort of take a view, and looking at what the, the directors are doing as well. You know, I, I think does a director, do these directors buy another one and a half million shares if they think that their, their future prospects are, are that bad when they've already got fifty percent of the company? And I'm thinking, you know. Although I can't see it, what are the signs telling me? And to me, I think I'm prepared to put a bit of trust in their skin in the game. And uh, you know, if I thought they were, uh, if I thought going forward the the rents and that were going to make that much effect, uh, the Zeus note is worth getting because I've had a read of that as well, and uh, it's a it's a good note, and uh, you can only go by that really, and and what I've seen there, and I, it's the reason why I think they're the. They're one worth backing, but obviously, you know, 
when you when you're these analysts or bro brokers, you, you can get in there and you can ask the company and me trying to ring up the Smiths and expecting them to give me an in-depth reply. Uh, little little individual, you know, we don't even get in on the these uh, analyst meetings now. It's all uh, bring if you if you're an analyst, you can go there. But if you're a private investor, you're treated as a second class citizen. So it's not as easy for us as, as it is for you to to get that sort of stuff. Richard, thank you very much indeed. So we're out of time for questions now. Let's go first to Andy to get your views on Shoe Zone and your view on the pitch. Now, at this stage, we don't want scores, save them for the end. But just give us a quick overview of your view on the on Shoe Zone and on the, your view on the pitch. It was, uh, to me, Richard, it was like uh, listening to a rerun of uh, the Mike Ashley playbook, sort of going from sort of in town to out of town, using his own brands, driving the margin, generating the cash and just doing something different. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of kicking myself that, you know, Zeus mentioned, mentioned this to me ages ago. And I mean, you've got to be joking, having your shoes, but really, you know, it just goes to show that uh, there is money in anything if you can run it correctly. So that's a thumbs up, Andy. Yeah, thumbs up. Yeah. I'll, I'll be in. I'll be in for seven o'clock tomorrow to read the results. And your view Thanks on the pitch? <laughs> Obviously, it sold you. Yeah, no, I thought. I thought the picture was. I thought the picture was interesting. You know, it's um, there were lots of things in there that I didn't even sort of thought of, and uh, a pitch that provides you with information you didn't have is a good pitch. Tremendous. Thanks very much. Stephen, I'm going to go to you next because I know that you did own this and then I don't think you do anymore. So what's your views on it now following on from Richard's pitch and what was your view on his pitch? Yeah, it's, it's become a bit mixed emotions which Richard rekindled there. Um, a lot of the things that I saw positively are starting to come through, certainly on the strategy. Uh, they're very, very ruthless, very, very shrewd. They've got in-house property lawyers. Um, first and foremost, I think the property experts, which I think the best retailers are. You know, McDonald's wasn't selling burgers. It was, a, it was a property firm. The burgers were a means to an end to pay the rents. And when you understand property, and if they could even finesse it, or the best performing stores was next to Primark. One had Primark moved and stores store sales collapsed. Nine months later, the lease expired. They moved right next to Primark again, and it was one of the best performing stores. And M&S Food apparently is the store they want to neighbour um, at the big box. So, so I, you, you touched on pretty much everything, uh, Richard. I think you covered a heck of a lot of ground. So thank you for that. The stock, I, I felt they should have raised money. Um, I won't go into the reasons that, um, on our discussions around there why they didn't, um, but they didn't. To be fair to them, they've avoided dilution. We won't know how close they came to running out of the money, but well done to them and really pleased. Um, so I'm trying to get over that. I, and I almost fell off my chair when the dividend announcement, we could almost get it back now this year uh, versus 2025. And it's just how and why has so much changed since March to kind of that October, November. I'm still trying to grapple with, with that. The world didn't change that much, certainly positively. So... Yeah, a bit mixed on the stock, but maybe that's my own prejudice as well. It definitely is. But well done, Richard. So do you wish you were holding now? Don't, don't know. Ask me an easier question. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to revisit it. I, I am. You're supposed to be decisive. I, <laughs> I just don't know, Judith. Um, I don't know. There was a bit, yeah. There's a, 
yeah, there's some things in private that I'll keep private. That I'm, yeah, a part of the mix, put it that way. Tremendous. Thank you very much. So, Judith, are you sold on Shoe Zone? And what did you think of the pitch? Um, well, I used to be a shareholder as well. Um, prior to the Smiths coming back in, in fact, had a bit of a debate with Smiths um, when they were still on the outside. And I've got to say I prefer them being in the inside because I always felt as though they were pulling the strings anyway on the outside. So it's actually better to see them um, back in the saddle, I suppose. And, you know, they are strong characters. I think that's probably the best way of putting it. So as an institution, you've got to form a view as to whether you're prepared to back um, dominant shareholders and strong a strong family. It does... I'm not even going to say the word mafia. That's the wrong thing to say, isn't it? But <clears throat> there is an element of that to, that to it. What I actually, the one of the reasons that I um, was not, um, I, I don't actually believe the margins, and that's what why we ended up selling in the end, aside from some other uh, governance reasons. But um, when you're selling a ten pound pair of shoes and getting almost like a software margin, it was almost unbelievable. But in fairness to them, um, they've proven us wrong, and they've come out the other end of COVID or come through COVID and still managing to achieve those types of margins. So, you know, hats off to them. I think my question marks would be over all the obvious stuff at the moment, inflation, supply chain issues and, and everything else. But, you know, we have that with any company that we look at. So what I've been really impressed with over the last little while is their efficiency on the online side. So I am going to be a little bit um, more definitive and decisive than Stephen and say that I'm, I'm probably... Uh, disappointed that I don't hold the stock and that's mainly because they've proven me wrong on the margins and I think they've probably proven me wrong on the um, ability to move online which we've seen a lot of companies that have really struggled but these guys have done it and I really like the demographic as well it's a bit like reminds me of another holding that we have Ramsden's the pawnbroker where you know it's all it's all up north solid salt of the earth stuff where you you can go into one of their stores and you really do know who's buying and why they're buying the products so yeah, good pitch as well. I think there were things that um, I felt as though I, I knew shoes on already, but you, you you drew some things out there that um, I hadn't really stumbled across for a couple of years. So thank you for that. Tremendous, Richard. Well, well done. You seem to have uh, presented it well and sold it well. So next up is Daniel Jones, who's going to present Synthoma with a ticker S-Y-N-T. So Daniel, over to you. You've got 10 minutes. Okay, thank you for your time. Good afternoon. Uh, we're presenting Synthoma in 10 minutes, uh, 2.3 billion enterprise value. Uh, the journey we're going to take is down the right-hand side, company finances, and, in, and ending in target valuation investment case. What do they do? Synthoma are the world-leading supplier of sustainable water-based polymer solutions. They are all around us. They hold leadership positions in coatings, construction, textiles, paper, adhesive, healthcare, very topical, and oil and gas. They, have a global, they are a global business, so provide a great hedge against footprint, currency, and logistics, and they send, sell to end users. They're not a middleman. How do they go about it? They focus on global megatrends. In 1950, less than 30% of the world's population lived in cities. By 2050, they think over 70% of the world's population will live in cities, so accelerating urbanization, Obviously, climate change is a huge focus. Uh, they offer water-based solutions, heat-reflective and insulating solutions. And they have this focus on shifting economic power. Their main markets are in Asia and the US, legacy business in Asia, acquisitions in the US. 
driven population growth, health and hygiene products. They achieve their results through growth, continuous innovation and disciplined acquisition and integration. They have three main divisions in the business, performance, functional and industrial. So it's very well diversified. And each of their divisions, they target number one or two position in their core markets. In terms of finances, uh, this, this table shows the finances for 2015 to 2020. Turnover has gone from 900 million to 1.6 billion, year end in 2020, December. Op profit from 80 to 190 million. Um, in terms of the year under review, 2021, um, they published their first six months results. They achieved 1.2 billion in six months sales, 287 million of op profit and 114 million of cash generation. Obviously, they haven't published their last six months in December 21, but their outturn is expected to be 2.2 billion in sales, 470 million in operating profit. We'll come back to that number and 206 in op cash. So the 470, 470 million operating profit is made up of 500 million EBITDA with about 30 million depreciation. And then of the 470, 80 million is an uplift from COVID. So, you know, not bad news uh, for once, but a good news in this result. So I think we should take that away and to normalize the result. So 390 million normalized if you take out COVID profits. So that would give an enterprise value of 5.9 on the pre-COVID results. The balance sheet is strong. It has a current ratio of 1.6, working capital to sales of 10%. There's some long-term debt, which is mainly linked to an acquisition in America of Omnova, which is successfully integrated and performing well. <clears throat> we all know that life is easier with a tailwind behind us rather than a headwind. So this, the share price from the COVID low of 200p rose to 550p. However, in December, early December, the, the share price dipped about 20%. Uh, we'll go into the reasons in a minute. It's currently floating around the 400p mark. So good, you know, good momentum for 19 months, struggled in the last month and a half. So since the publishing of the first six months actual results, there was an acquisition. Uh, Synthoma purchased Eastman Chemical Company, an ex-Kodak division for 700 million sterling, a billion dollars. That was financed via a new placement, which was completed within a few days, debt facilities in place of 300 million, and they're going to use cash reserves of 195 million. They've got 285 on the balance sheet today, so uh, there should be no problems with this. They've purchased that business at a multiple of 10, so given about 70 million sterling uh, into the operating profit before synergies. Any head office synergies will take as a margin of safety in our uh, valuation. So post-period acquisition, the enterprise value goes from 2.3 billion today to 2.8 with those adjustments. And the uh, pre-COVID op profit of 390 that we looked at earlier, if you add the 70 from Eastman, you get to 460 million. So that would give a PE on enterprise of 6.1. So, you know, a very safe uh, margin of safety on entry at a six multiple. Are they a good corporate citizen? Well, the E of ESG, environmental, uh, the market thinks they are. They got awarded the Green Economy Mark in July 2021. And that means that 50% of their revenues or more are derived from environmental solutions. So a good tick in the e-box for ESG. <clears throat> in terms of risks, I've got five. And this is one of them. Management team has changed and is changing. So Michael Willome took over in November last year. Um, he's ex-CEO of a similar Swiss-listed business where he doubled the share price uh, in, in his leadership. 
Um, and then Stephen Bennett, the current CFO, is leaving the business in August 22. Uh, his replacement has been uh, named as Lily, and Lily joins from Accentra, a FTSE 250 business, and uh, she's a non-exec of DCC. I think the management change is a risk, which you'll see in a minute from the broker note that we're going to come across. <clears throat> in terms of the share price moving in December, uh, I haven't had access to the broker note, but Morgan Stanley uh, performed a double down downgrade on the share, on the stock. Um, three main reasons, supply chain, management transition, and leverage. Um, if we address them in reverse order, on the leverage side, uh, they are acquiring businesses. Um, we'll come on to the risk of that later, but integration is the key risk. In terms of leverage, they're at 2.6 op profit to, uh, to long-term debt. Anything under three, I'm uncomfortable with. Anything over three, I start to get worried. So they're, they're on the cusp of that, but I don't think they're over it. Um, in terms of management transition, I fully agree. I think it could be a risk, but it, it could also be a benefit, uh, an opportunity, renewed energy, renewed focus, someone trying to make a name for themselves. Um, and then the last one, you know, supply chain. Uh, I, I think, uh, as we said earlier, uh, with Richard's presentation, um, everyone, every business in the world is, is concerned about that. My, my view is that it will sort itself out and we just have to, we have to be aware of it and manage it in the short term. So of the 13 brokers covering the stock, eight are strong buyers or buyers, four are hold, and one is a sell. As I say, uh, I haven't seen the, the Morgan Stanley note, but for me, this is a buying opportunity. So everyone always tells us of the moon and, the, and Mars, but you know, what are our worst case scenarios? I think there's five main ones, uh, main risks to consider. The level of uplifting results by COVID. Um, my research shows it's 80 million, but is it more than that? That would adjust my numbers. There's a new management team we've discussed. Integration of acquisitions, Omnova is done, Eastman is coming. Integration, you know, getting that right is important. The group net retirement benefit obligation is 220 million. I think that's half a year's profit, so I'm not too worried about that. And inflationary pressures throughout the supply chain. We've discussed that. Five main risks. The investment case. So the business is recession and pandemic proof. It was designated an essential industry during the pandemic. It's focused on the global megatrends that we talked about, accelerating urbanization, you know, construction coating, healthcare hygiene. The E under ESG is strong, water-based solutions, heat reflection coatings and insulating textiles. It has about 5% of the global market right now, so still room to grow, to double, to triple, quadruple. It's UK listed, so I think it's undervalued. And there's a global hedge on footprint currency and logistics that naturally comes into their operations. In terms of a target valuation, um, adjusted per the slides earlier, 460 million op profit on a safe, cautious 10 PE would give 4.6 billion. The adjusted enterprise value is 2.8 after the Eastman acquisition, given a gain of 64%. You know, 12 and 15 PEs would push it up to 97, 146%. I'll reassess at 3.5 billion once I've, uh, you know, compounded at 25%. And at the same time, we take a 4.4% dividend to beat the bank deposit rate. So why invest in Synthoma? It's a well-diversified group with revenue and geography. Um, it has tailwinds of global megatrends. It has sustainable solutions. It has a strong financial foundation. It has a profitable business, a ba good balance sheet and cash flow. It's not a startup business. It has a refreshed management team with exciting acquisitions. It's a low cost of entry for private investors. The spread is low. 
The five risks are manageable, and I believe there's a 50% to 100% gain potential here. Thank you. Tremendous, Daniel. So, Andy, Judith, Stephen, who has a question? I'd be interested in, uh, in Andy and Judith's view on this as well, but when companies pay for an acquisition, a rating that is higher than their own, I mean, I'm not against it per se, and I don't believe in that alchemy where you're, you're acquiring on EVs of, say, five and you're on 10 and all of a sudden you've alchemized value. If you're buying a crappy business, then your multiple post deal should fall um, commensurate with that. But do you feel in Synthoma's hands that they can justify 10.3 times EV EBITDA for the deal they've just done it? And the timing of it seems peculiar as well. There's no ownership now from a CEO, CFO. They've inherited the biggest deal Synthoma has ever done. Um, I just find it a little bit odd. Well, uh, Callum, Callum, yeah. I was just going to say, Callum came, Callum came to see me. Callum came to see me and I did ask him that, um, was he doing the CEO sort of victory lap that Jeff Cooper did at Travis Perkins buying Wicks before he left and Bill Rogers did at Babcock buying an Italian helicopter company uh, before he left and uh, we all know what happened next um, and so I'd be very interested to hear you know because Stephen you make a really good point about it's a higher multiple and he would argue that it's a it's a it's a much it's a great business that's why it's paying a high price. Daniel your views? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I hadn't really thought that one through. I mean, my initial reactions are the 10 multiple is a good benchmark for where, you know, the Synthoma business should be. Um, for me, it also implied that they feel they're, you know, the market isn't, Mr. Market isn't appreciating their uh, their value today. And they probably assume or guess or, or calculate that their business is worth at least a 10 multiple as well. Um, yeah, fundamentally, the, the management change, you know, is a is a worry like we talked about um but you know i'm a ceo of a business no no matter what i do i will always set up my business for the best future it can have regardless of whether i'm at the helm or not and you know maybe that was you know that's their view they they just want to put the company make the best uh, acquisitions at the time that are available regardless of who's at the helm in one or two years time so yeah i think it's a good benchmark on 10 times I believe Synthoma is undervalued and it will get to 10 to 12. And the CEO that was leaving that did the deal, you know, do what's right for the company. But it's a great question. I don't have the answer, full answer. I think sometimes in these situations, when, when you highlight the, the, the risks and, you know, they, they, are, they are quite clear. I think Morgan Stanley, or was it JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, uh, when they, they, they put that note out and achieved, I think, 25, 30% of the share price, they were stating the, what you'd call the bleedingly obvious. And sometimes, and I've always kicked myself when you've identified the bleedingly obvious and then actually you you just put it into the, the box of mitigating those um, those risks because uh, you, you've acknowledged them. But but actually, these are quite big risks. And when, when you look at the board, it's been, for me, there's been just too many revolving doors. You've got a CEO leaving on a bit of a last hurrah. You've got a board, you've got a new chair that I think went in last year. You've got seven non-execs. So who's really taking responsibility? And they're doing a bit of a strategic uh, board review as well. So, you know, who really is holding the can for this? And um, 
I, I can't quite put my finger on it, but intuitively knowing that there's that kind of revolving door in both the board and the management team, despite the valuation and despite the compelling nature of the growth uh, markets that they're in, I, I just get pretty nervous about that. And I, I find it quite difficult to override that. Very good point. The other thing, Daniel, is, you know, the other thing, Daniel, is I think you've got to look, look more closely at what's really happening in that nitrile glove market because... You know, we all agree that it's a, it's a long-term growth market and they were the first ones to sort of get into the powder-free gloves. But, you know, capacity comes in on a regular basis and you get a, a chart where the growth of the market is and suddenly you've got more capacity and then less capacity. And I'm not clear where we really are. And obviously, COVID has really sort of clouded the picture in, in terms of that. Yeah, do, do you know, I think it's a company called Kimbo that are, are putting in the world, world's largest uh, factory um, as a main competitor. So it's difficult, you know, looking at the margins, they've gone from 8% to 18% to, I think the note now says 12-15% normalised. But if you get that, just going on Andy's point, if you get that coming in, does it go back down to 8 And if it does, then actually it probably looks about fair, fairly valued. It's quite difficult to tell at the moment, though. Maybe it's one to watch. Keep an eye on. Yeah, uh, it, 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 optically it looks cheap, and it, that's that's perversely what puts me off today. Um, I think the nitrile rubber is set to generate on its own 280 million of EBITDA this year. Canaco's got that falling by 140 million uh, by 2024. So quite a big fade. In there, as Andy alluded to, there's there's a lot of supply coming on. It's the equivalent to 40% of the current market supply coming online in the next two years. And I, th I think I'd prefer to wait until earnings have actually normalised and bottomed. We've seen a normalisation of COVID hit all sorts of lockdown stocks last year. Maybe this is just a bit later stage in normalising and it's still got a bit more work to do. I wonder if that deal was a bit of a Hail Mary deal to plug this uh, negative growth that's going to come through now and trying to offset it. But I did like the comment. I think it was Berenberg. Apologies for misquoting, or it was Canacor. But um, they've bought a business that's cash generative but cyclical, exactly like Synthoma, which is cash generative but cyclical. Uh, it's it's is it adding that much diversification? I think it has done geographically, but are they zigging and zagging at different points? These businesses that it's introduced, I, I'm not sure. And I just know what in final one in passing, Top Glove, that Malaysian rubber glove manufacturer, they were a COVID stock. They rose 500% in 2020. And since then, they've fallen 74%. So that that, that glove market, it's already uh, rapidly normalising from, from just the rubber. Well, I appreciate synthetic is synth synthetic rubber, but I do think that's pretty telling. Sorry, Daniel, you didn't realise that the three of us were experts in the, the nitro glove market. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> Thanks for the comments. Yeah, especially Top Gun or Top Glove, as he's known. <laughs> <laughs> Likes a bit of rubber. <laughs> Are you going to show us on your feet yet, Judith? <laughs> just wait, just wait. <laughs> so any final comments, Daniel? It, they've slightly shot it down. Do you want to come back with anything to add? No, I, I you know, I appreciate the comments and um, it looks like it's one to watch. 
just to see uh, as the results normalize. The world has changed. You know, we're not going to go back to the old ways too quickly, too easily, are we? Um, but yeah, pro probably one to w wait and watch. Thanks for the comments. So, Judith, let's come to you for your comments on the stock and your comments on the pitch. No scores at this stage. Um, on the pitch, I thought it was really, really well done. Um, it concisely uh, covered all the bases, told, told us what you were going to tell us and then did it in a, in a way that you were bang on the button in terms of timing as well. Uh, and I thought it was very succinct. So I, I think I'm, I'm not allowed to give a score, am I yet? Uh, I think the, the presentation was good. Um, I think you probably know my thoughts on on the on the stock itself, um, but you know you've mm -hmm. given me enough to uh, to to whet my appetite to to keep an eye on it. But I, I think you know that that management aspect where they're handing over the reins and heading out to the high hills um, just makes me nervous. Andy, do you want to go next? Yeah, no, I thought I thought the presentation had a good pace. I mean, it's not the easiest company. Sort of present on because it's in so many different areas and it touches so many different parts of, of you know sort of economic uh, growth or decline. Um, I thought that the whole mega trends thing was interesting. I think you would have probably been better served to have more uh, information on natural capacity, but um, you know it's a stock I actually do hold it, and um, so I'm with you, hoping that actually Callum is telling the truth and that it's, it's a great acquisition. Um, but it's one that's sort of, you know, I look at, the, you know, we've been here before with stocks like Victrex where people get really worried about overcapacity and it doesn't come to pass. And so we're waiting to see, um, you know, before we add to it any more, I think I'd like to see the next set of results and try and establish the trend. And what are you looking Thanks. for in the next set of results, Andy? Uh, what I'm looking for, I'm looking for some sort of clarity that, uh, what exactly is happening in the, the nitrile glove market. You know, we talked earlier about what is the new normal. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a retailer with what's happening with business rates going forward, any business, you know, what is the real underlying level of demand is something, I don't know about what Judith and Stephen are thinking, but it's something I sort of grapple with every day. Thank you. And Stephen, your thoughts on the pitch and the stock? Uh, I thought the pitch was excellent, Daniel. Uh, you covered a heck of a lot of ground. I like the fact you pointed out their market positioning, number one or two. I uh, thought the exposition of the financials was very strong. Uh, I'm glad you covered the double downgrade because that was very pertinent to the narrative uh, recently. Um, yeah, really, really impressed. Um, if anything, slight missing, we've gone into that kind of nitrile. If, if you could break it down segmental and just hammer home exactly how super normal that earning stream has been for them over the last one or two years, um, maybe even pictorial. Um, I'm quite a fellow, so I like diagrams. Um, but yeah, really well done. Um, Stock-wise, uh, just I've, I've got no idea where the bottom is. Um, call me a coward uh, but I'd just prefer to sit it out uh, and wait and see but certainly you know we could be dipping in the realms of yeah it depends too early to be a special situation but there's, there's certain yeah, certain attractions to it um, so yeah glad it's on the radar thank you many thank thanks you. Daniel thanks very much indeed for a superb pitch 
So we'll now go to Leo Hendry, who will present Capital, ticker CAPD. Leo, you've now got 10 minutes. Over to you. Thank you, Tamsin. Indeed, uh, today I'm going to be talking about Capital, which is a mining services company, mostly supplying gold miners in Africa. So a bit of background. The company was jointly founded in 2005 as Capital Drilling by the current um, executive director, Brian Rudd, coming to market in 2010 with Brian as CEO and the current executive chairman of Jamie Boyton. Um, their first drilling operations were in Tanzania before expanding into the Sakari mine in Egypt run by Sentamin, who are now their largest customer. Now, I have to admit that natural resources is an area rather outside of my comfort zone. But after looking at the company in detail, I found the proposition to be compelling. Um, as you can see from the map of their operations, they have a reasonable geographical spread, which mitigates the jurisdictional risk. And although their biggest customer is Sentamin, Anglo Gold Ashanti in Tanzania are also a major customer. And there's also a long tail of others giving reasonable diversification whilst only having a 3% exposure to junior miners. What first attracted me to the company was the observation that at this point in their business cycle, they started seeing in the past, um, they started seeing significantly improved utilization and pricing in their, um, of their drill rigs, resulting in bumper profits from very little incremental capital expenditure and consequently strong cash flow and returns to shareholders. However, in the last 18 months, they have diversified by winning a major load and haul contract and moving into geochemical laboratory analysis, leading them to generalize their name to just capital. This, together with a focus on long-term contracts, mainly in production rather than exploration, should significantly reduce cyclicality and positions them as more of a growth company than in the past. Their equity investments into customers have also been doing well. Many stakes were obtained by dual for equity contracts when raising money for gold exploration and production was much harder than it is today. Uh, when raising money for gold exploration and production was much harder than it is today. As a result, it now makes sense to value the company as a sum of its parts. So we have um, the core and traditional capital drilling part um, at a 4.4 times 40 EBITDA. Um, the lower margin capital mining part, which includes that load and haul contract, on a 3.2 times forward EBITDA. Um, the high margin, fast growing MSA labs part on a valuation of six times historical revenue. The investment portfolio with a 10% haircut to be conservative and debt, which I've taken out of the core drilling part at the top of the graph. It's all too easy, I think, to demonstrate a particular company is in undervalued at a particular point in time just by choosing the right metrics or multiples. But the thing about capital is that while it started off apparently cheap, it has got progressively cheaper and cheaper on the same metric since. Despite a respectable share price rise shown by the black line, very strong broker upgrade momentum and tangible improvement in the quality of the business. Uh, for the full year 2022 forecast, which are the right hand bar of the chart, even if you demand a 20% rise in the share price of capital by then, 
uh, it's, it's share price in capital limited, I should say, to be clear, uh, as I've shown on the black line, yet you expect their investment portfolio to be unchanged, the discount to fair value is set to become even more extreme. So the reason I believe EBITDA is a valid measure here is because the contracts behind the above forecast do not require any significant further capital expenditure and the multiple I've used are in line with industry peers. But alternatively, looking from an earnings per share perspective, it can be seen that the chasm has also opened up between the current share price and the nominal P of 10, which is shown on the green line. Despite expectations of significant cash dividends, and this is before taking into account the effect of share buybacks that have already started. So while the cycle will eventually turn, um, long contract lengths and a history of renewal mean those EBITDA multiples are well supported. And in the short term, at least, the situation remains very strong. Um, The gold price is historically high, yet seems relatively stable. And fundraisings amongst potential customers remain at levels far above uh, two years before. This this cash that's been raised is likely to be spent with the likes of capital, come what may. Now, I've talked a lot about numbers and the valuation, and this is the most obvious attraction to the company. But I believe there's also plenty of evidence that this is an intrinsically good and well-run organisation. Repeated renewals, as well as relatively high margins and a strong safety record, point to this being a quality company. As further evidence, I'd like to quote this from customer sentiment from their last interim report while talking about continuous improvement. A total uh, two megatons was contributed by Capital Limited, our waste contract miner, who also outperformed their budget, having mobilized equipment and personnel significantly ahead of schedule and delivering productivity ahead of schedule. Um, and just looking at the time, I think this, this presentation may be ahead of schedule too. Um, so why is the company so cheap? Well, certainly from a private investor perspective, many people won't consider anything to do with mining. Yet many natural resources investors would find capital too boring. So I think they're somewhat caught between two stalls. Similarly, it's both a growth and a value share at a time when investors have become increasingly divided between the two. Um, There have been also been frequent insider sales, including a significant secondary placing last year, uh, 2021 that is, Uh, which has certainly hit the share price at times. Although, of course, these events do provide good entry points for larger and institutional investors. Prior to the 2020 fundraise and recent strong share price performance, the market capitalisation was below 100 million, but it's now marching towards a more institutional friendly 200 million. So to summarise on the last slide, I've, I've covered some of this already, There appears to be an overlooked share with quite a few reasons to believe this might be about to change. Uh, But the key one is the turning point in their investment cycle. Both my modelling and their guidance shows considerable increasing free cash flow from here, which they'll be using to buy back shares as well as repay relatively expensive debt, which will enhance earnings as well as paying a strong dividend. So this is not a a perfect share, and I've I've put on the bottom, ask me, 
Um, so rather than let you ask me, I'll fill in some of the time by uh, going into some of the things that you were probably going to ask me, but may not have done. Okay, so the first thing I think which stands out is is regarding the UK Corporate Governance Code, which, which they don't uh, conform to. So the chairman and CEO roles have been combined since 2017. Um, they, they said they would review in 2021, and since we haven't heard anything, presumably there's no change there. And secondly, they rather fudged the requirement for at least half the directors to be independent, claiming that one of the uh, non-executives with tenure of over 10 years was actually um, independent. Although in this case, they have appointed a new NED since. So maybe there's, maybe there's signs of an improvement there. Um, the other thing that people tend to pick up on is the uh, tax situation. They've got a claim in particular which hasn't which hasn't been allowed for um, from Tanz Tanzania for one point five million dollars relating to twenty sixteen to twenty eighteen. Um, so this is becoming a less material amount as time goes on, but. Um, also, the auditors are all over this and they raise it. Well, they don't raise it, actually. They don't raise it as a concern, but they, they list it in the things that they particularly looked at, along with revenue recognition and a few other things um, uh, every year. Um, so uh, despite those negative points, I think this company is far too cheap and um, this cannot continue for much longer. Thank you. Okay, so we're ready for questions now. Thanks very much, Leo. So, Stephen, do you want to kick off with questions or who would like to quick off, kick off with questions? Yeah, that's fine. Uh, thanks for that, Leo. Fascinating. Um, I've been keeping semi-tabs on this one for a while. <clears throat> the Looking back 2010 to 2012, 80% utilisation of the rig seems to be a bit of a glass ceiling for them, which coincided with the, the peak apogee of the gold price then. Um, should we or do we get nervous then as we reapproach that utilization that we are perhaps top of market certainly on its core drilling appreciate they've got the contract mining and the the labs business coming through over time but i think the here and the now is going to be dictated where the, the, the core business goes okay yes yeah, so i think you're right it's difficult for them to um exceed 80 percent first of all or that they may do for short periods of time because they're Rigs are always being moved around, so they can't all be being used at once. Um, I, I would say that there's some scope for some of it. Uh, uh, there's also a mismatch from time to time about uh, what kind of rigs they have because there, was, there are various different types that don't always match um, the requirements that are in the market at time. I, I would say that um, this cash that's been raised um, recently uh, for both exploration and mining um, amongst potential customers is a good forward indicator of, of demand. Um, and so maybe they will they will exceed 80% this time, but I don't think anybody should base their investment case of it, it going much above that for very long. Now, in terms of the, it turning down, um, well, the, the company themselves believe that um, we're still early in this cycle. Now, maybe they would say that, maybe they're fooling themselves, but I think they were realistic last time in the last cycle. Um, and, and they seem to broadly get it right. Uh, so I don't have any reasons to doubt them. And uh, based on based on what I can see, 
um, I think it's going to be more of a, a plateau for a couple of years rather than a spike upwards and back down again. Thank you. You mentioned you mentioned the tax, but the the claims are sort of seventeen million dollars, of which they, you know, sort of provided two point seven. Now I, I don't know if Judith and Stephen remember that uh, Tanzanian gold company, which was then absolutely nuked by the uh, Tanzanian government when they claimed that they were exporting vast amounts of gold gold that they were under declaring. You know that just scared, a that scares life out of me. B I can't understand why um, their receivables are so high. And if it's a quality company, why the adjusted return on capital actually fell six points, half one last year compared to half one this year. Okay, so I think it's important to note this is not a mining company. So comparing it directly to what's happened with miners, I mean, they're a mining services company. So they're not exporting gold themselves. So some of these some of these risks yeah. um, uh, uh, and around taxation of, of uh, uh, around this kind of area are not so extreme for them. But but clearly they do operate in a number of countries where rules can change quite quickly regimes can change quite quickly and it is a risk which is why i highlighted the diversification um across different um ad- across different jurisdictions at the beginning um so yes it is a risk but as, as i said i think it's reducing in terms of uh, the size of the company as times goes on so it's somewhat diluted um so sorry the second part of your question can you just remind me what that was yeah so it's just a, the sort of large increase i know revenue is growing like a week ah yes return on capital increases. yes Yes, so um, it's not been good. I mean, and, and you look at the share price performance in the long term, it's not been particularly good either. Um, but I think this is now a different company than it has been in the past. And um, they've they've had to invest a lot in, in the last 18 months for these new contracts. Um, and we should be seeing the, the benefit of that coming through. And, and it is starting to come through now. And, and I think that's emphasized by the announcement of the share buyback, albeit small. Uh, I think last week or this week. Can you um, can you give me a bit more flavour on your um, conviction around the the valuation of the equity investments, which make up about thirty percent of the market cap? And it's always quite difficult when you've got companies that you look at some of the parts, and actually that that's quite um, it's quite dominant. It's also quite subjective, obviously. Well, there, there's certainly there's there's some uh, unquoted investments w- there which are subjective. I'm not making a judgment on those. I'm just going based on their last valuation of them. But they're they're quite a small proportion. I I think it's either ten or twenty percent. Um, and actually, most of the investments are, uh, that by value are actually in two or three companies, and they're relatively large. And I can't remember the name of them. Um, but uh, uh, they've got that. There's a well-established market for those shares in Canada. So, I, I mean, you could easily make an argument that you should, if they tried to sell them all in the market now, they would they, the discount would be greater than ten percent, um, or that they couldn't sell them because of business uh, relationship reasons. Um, so you could make a, an argument for that discount being bigger. Um, but I think that. You know, if you overall look at the the, the the discount here that we're looking at, it's it's about half the valuation 
uh, overall. Um, it, it's about half what I come come through as intrinsic value overall. So I think there's plenty of margin for error there. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, I mean, they're certainly pretty um, nifty when it comes to uh, the capital. They issued capital at 60p, wasn't it? And they're buying back at 90. I don't know if that's what shareholders necessarily are looking for. but um, And I would justify that. Yeah, I would justify that on the basis that, that their investment portfolio has gone up considerably in that time and um that wasn't a foreseeable thing so i don't think you can think that that equity was as quite as expensive as it's as it sound sounds based on that basis um and and they have been trading very well um maybe better than they expected so the lab's business a minnow compared to its peers uh, als um derives 34 percent ebitda margin from that lab's business Contract mining looks more like a 20 EBITDA margin, and the average for the group's 28%. Now, if contract mining is a growth area for them, I appreciate tenders coming up, attach these add-ons to them. Maybe it's as much defensive as offensive why they moved into that area. Um, if that improves the earnings quality, then that's that's deserves a higher rating. If MS Labs uh, is truly high margin, probably a very high return on capital, I think Berenberg is talking that up potentially a $50 million per annum business by 2026 and stick your six times multiple on that and we'd all be uh, all be very happy. But, but I, I'm concerned and it's traded at three and a half times EV but the last five years. Um, how can we get this up to maybe something like five times? And you do that by either increasing the margin and or return on capital and or lower earnings um, volatility. Um, but for me, these businesses that they're moving into the adjacencies, I appreciate that the, perhaps there is structural growth there as they move on to the production side of things. But I was looking at the last business and it is it still correlate very strongly to that financing rounds within the gold miners in terms of the exploration side. Uh, and then you come back to that steady state, what's in production and whatnot. The equities, when they're highly rated, probably the earnings of the company are going to be at a high point as well. Once you tip into a bear market, those equities will get decimated and earnings get decimated at the same time. I just think there's a lot of pro-cyclicality going on with the various businesses. So conglomerization as a strategy can work if they're zigging and zagging at different points, but they all seem to be correlated to one. Yeah, um, the the correlation between the equity portfolio and the rest of the business, I I don't like particularly. And and I don't like the, the equity portfolio in general because... I'm not an investor in um, mining companies, so I don't really want to buy stuff in there. So, um, if if it weren't for this this big discount, then I w- I would be um, I'd be less interested. Um, in terms of uh, the correlation on the other side, yeah, I mean certainly this load and haul contract is intended to diversify uh, um, away but the other thing they've been doing is um taking on longer um and and re-signing contracts for long periods of time um and they also uh, have a focus on the production side rather than the exploration side which is less sensitive to that fundraising round um and on top of that although they've got quite a lot of debt they also hold quite a lot of cash as well so their you know their current ratio is is two two point two times unadjusted, and even if you take some pretty extreme views on inventory write downs and and um, 
not being paid for things you know th- there's an enormous um margin uh there on the um on the financing side so um i'm i'd prefer they they, they sold some of that equity portfolio but um they've done very well so far and they're in a good position to do so because they you know they have the data from ms labs and they have the data from uh, uh that you know they have the market insight to potentially do well there Leo, thank you very much indeed. We're out of time on questions. So, um, Stephen, shall we stick with you to get your views on the um, on the stock and on the pitch? Um, the stock itself, it, it certainly has attractions. Uh, it's a bit of a cure its eggs in some other respects. I would prefer that equity portfolio to, to not be there. Um, like you, Leo, if I want to do that i can buy the share separately myself i do like picks and shovels trades generally and it doesn't get more picks and shovels than quite literally this company um and i am constructively bullish on gold uh, at the margin anyway um but i'm just struggling to see can this thing permanently re-rate um and where we are in that cycle i suspect we've, we've yeah, I appreciate and accept where the company's coming from. They still feel we're earlier rather than later. Probably concur with that. Uh, but a lot of moving parts. But um, I'm going to sit on the fence again. Sorry, <laughs> Judith, don't lambast me. And on the pitch? It'll be a barbed wire fence next time. <laughs> uh, pitch, excellent. Um, I, I know your work, Leo. Uh, it was exactly what I expected. Uh, if anything, I thought your answer session was probably a little bit stronger than the pitch. Um, well, yeah, it was excellent. Judith, do you want to go next? Um, yeah, I mean, I kind of echo that. I think you know that it, it's it, it's nice business on on paper. What I think it's probably a difficult time for me to get my head around at this stage in the cycle. And, and actually, the, the ironic thing is that you can. You can probably point to what they could do differently to uh, improve their rating, getting from that three and a half times to five or six. And I don't think any of us really like the equity bit. We don't understand and it's not exposure that we want. And and actually, if they believe that the return on invested capital is now going to improve from where it has historically, then I'd rather they sold down the equities and prove that they can improve that return on invested capital. I think they have historically been quite good at capital allocation um, and they're a management team with decent skin in the game and uh, you know a, a good track record through the cycles. But I get the impression at the moment it could just be a little bit of a value trap for the next little while until there's maybe some kind of catalyst. Um, in terms of the presentation, um, good. Some of the parts analysis, no surprises there. I thought uh, that came across um, very well. Well, I like the analysis of um, why you think the share price is where it is, which I think is very honest. And uh, I, yeah, like like Stephen, I thought the Q and A session probably gave me a little bit more information that uh, came out of the the actual presentation itself. You, you clearly know this position, Andy. Well. You know, we're living in a world where governments are short of money. And uh, I hear what you say, that they don't actually um, mine gold. But um, these governments like Tanzania and uh, Zambia and the other ones um, will be looking at these profits and saying, yeah, we want a bigger and bigger cut of those. And I just think on a risk-reward basis, if you want to play, you know, sort of mining without mining, then I'd rather buy a royalty stream of earnings from a cobalt mine in Canada 
where at least, you know, I've got some sort of protection. I don't feel I've got any protection uh, if I invested in this company. And the pitch? But I like the pitch. You know, I thought the pitch was good. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not the easiest company to get across because, you know, we're sitting here and we're thinking, well, why don't we just go and buy Ashted or Spire if we want sort of exposure to, you know, sort of kit. Um, and it, but it, is, but it is the country risks that you really need to focus down on because that is the big imponderable on this, in my view. So now the bit that we've all been waiting for, who has sold it to the city? And that'll come down to the scores. So we'll go back to the beginning again and give a score from each of you for Richard Crowe's shoe zone. First, we want the score for the actual stock and then we want the score for the pitch. So who wants to go first? Andy, you're ready. Yes. Give us your score for the Uh, stock. Uh, I've got four for the stock and I've got three for uh, the presentation. Thank you, Andy. So that gives us a total of seven. And Judith, let's go to you next. Can you give a a score for the stock and then for the pitch? I have got four for the stock and I've got 3.5 for the pitch. Oh, you love your 3.5s or your 0.5s, don't you? And Stephen. coming. <laughs> uh, and that gives a total of 7.5, sorry. And Stephen, you for the stock and the pitch. Uh, four for the stock. And it's quite apt. We're all doing half sizes and, and anticipating due to this 0.5. I've gone three and a half as well for the pitch. Very closely matched. Okay, so that's 7.5, and that gives Richard a total of 22 points. So let's see, Biker. And it's very interesting because you've all given a score of four out of five for the stock. So you were all equally sold on that one. And now let's go to Daniel's pitch of Synthoma. And um, shall we start with you again, Andy? So if you could give us yep. your um, score for the stock and score for the pitch. I've got three, three for the presentation and three for the stock. Great, giving a total of six. And Judith, it's going to have a half in it, I know. What do you give for the stock and the pitch? Uh, stock, 2.5. Pitch, 3.5. Great giving a total of six. And Stephen? Um, Stock two and the pitch 4.5. Whoa, tremendous. So that's a total from Stephen of 6.5 and a total for the pitch and stock together for Daniel of 18.5. And finally, Leo, again, if we start with you, Andy, with the stock um, for capital and for the pitch. Well, for the pitch, I've gone 2.5, just to join the 0.5 team. I've been a bit left out. <laughs> and uh, I've gone two, 2 for the stock. Okay, tremendous. And that gives a total of 4.5. And Judith? I, <clears throat> got, for the company, I've got 2.8. Is that annoying? 2.8? Gosh, <laughs> you do try me. Carry on. Oh. <laughs> and I'll make it easier then for you. 4.2. <laughs> for the presentation <laughs> it comes to a round number in the end it does it does you've saved me it comes to seven and Stephen are you going to have point something something 
No, no decimals this time. Uh, three for the stock and four for the pitch. Tremendous, giving a total of seven. And we've got a tie in second position with 18.5 each for Daniel and for Leo. So the winner is, yet again, Richard Crow with Shoe Zone with a score of 22. Richard, well done. So you're getting dangerously near having lunch with one of these fund managers. Are you happy to come back to the next sell it to the city to, to give them your next pitch? Because at the moment, they're filling their portfolios with your pitches. Yeah, OK, well... Uh... I started my diet January the 1st, so we might have to delay that meal a little bit. But the, uh, you, yeah, haven't, I'll you haven't come along. won it yet. You haven't won it yet. You've got to win one more, <laughs> and then, oh, and then you can uh, come off your diet. I'll have to pick out diet. something special. <laughs> I'll have to pick out something special. Tremendous. Well, a pleasure. Tremendous. Huge, huge congratulations. And enormous thanks to everyone, especially our panel, Andy Bruff, without whom this wouldn't have happened, Judith McKenzie and Stephen English, and to our superb investors, Daniel and Leo, and of course, Richard, who sold it to the city. And do get in touch if you'd like to pitch your stock to this panel of leading fund managers. And if you win three times, you get the opportunity to go to lunch with one of them. We'd love to get some younger investors, perhaps those who are looking for a job in the city. It's a great opportunity to raise your profile and put yourself out there and a great challenge and experience and maybe good for the CV. So please get in touch with us through piworld.co.uk. Thank you all for watching. Do give us your comments on this format on social media and find more investing videos at piworld.co.uk. See you next time. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.